0: The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish
1: Life. We're here to support your company and your employees, now and in the future. We know Irish life. We
2: are Irish Life.
0: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. With 2018 only days away, this week I brought together a panel of leading business people and commentators to discuss the challenges and opportunities that might lie ahead in the new year. You'll hear from Francesca McDonough, who took over as Chief Executive of Bank of Ireland in October, from IBEC Chief Executive Danny McCoy, and Chris Horn, a serial technology entrepreneur and Irish Times columnist. Just let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Francesca McDonough, welcome to Ireland, first of all. Uh, your first impressions of Ireland?
2: My first impressions of Ireland are very positive. Um, I have been here quite a few times before. My, my father's... Uh, Family is originally from from um, Galway, from Carraroe. So I used to come here as a child. This but you were born in Britain. I was born in the UK. And this is the first time that I've lived in Ireland, um, and I've been living here since I got appointed to, to the role of CEO. Um, and I'm enjoying living here. Um, I'm enjoying working here, um, and not without its challenges. But the Bank of Ireland has an amazing history and heritage, mm. uh, but also a, a fantastic future in my opinion. Now
0: yeah. yeah, you were something of a high flyer with HSBC. You had many uh, different senior roles uh, within the bank. Uh, in multiple locations around the world as well. So why did you decide? Presumably, you, you, know, you could have had your choice of jobs uh, in the banking sector around the world. Why Bank of Ireland?
2: I worked at HSBC for 20 years. I joined there as a graduate trainee. Um, and there comes t- there come a time when you get a phone call or, or people approach you about your interest in other jobs. And I never took those phone calls, um, apart from when the call from Bank of Ireland came.
0: And when did that call come?
2: Um, that came earlier in 2017. And what attracted me was this is the Bank of Ireland. To be the group CEO of this organisation um, is a huge personal and professional responsibility, but also a privilege. Um, and like I say, there's a great history, but I'm very excited about the future potential and the, the, the opportunity to transform um, what is the um, the largest lender in Ireland and a bank that I think has amazing potential to, to keep um, uh, serving our customers and our shareholders as well.
0: Mm. So what are the big challenges as you see it for 2018 for Ireland? Are we talk- what are we talking about? Are we talking about housing, Brexit, uh, growth in the economy... How do you see it?
2: So when I, when I look at 2018, um, there's a few things that I see. Um, I would say four or five big trends. One is economic growth, but in the context of uncertainty, um, especially due to Brexit. Um, a second area is housing and the availability of affordable housing and funding for, for buyers and for developers. Third one is technology, and and I see that very much in changes in our customers' behaviours and expectations towards technology. Um, And then two further ones. One is about inclusion and diversity, and um, I think that the role of diversity in business and financial services in particular is going to become more of a prevalent theme and part of social discourse in, in the year ahead. Um, I also and I'll end on that sort of last fifth one, which is a big issue, is the need to restore trust in banks. Um, and also, and I'm, something that I'm very um, busy doing at the moment, is really reflecting on our culture and our culture at Bank of Ireland and opportunities to, to further progress it.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, talking about culture and the reputation of banks, obviously, you came here and this whole tracker mortgage issue had been bubbling for quite some time. Not of your making, obviously, uh, but it was, it was land, the solution uh, or a solution uh, kind of uh, landed in your lap. Um, and you have uh, announced recently that you're going to redress, uh, I think it's another 6,000 or so customers. Uh, and you, you've kind of reached the. Uh, a view with the central bank on, on how to go forward on, on that. Were you surprised by the, how the whole tracker mortgage issue evolved in Ireland and the the, the, the size of it uh, in relation to the banks here, particularly Bank of Ireland?
2: Something that, that happened. You're right. Soon after I, I arrived, I was about th- three weeks in the role when we, we really started seeing a huge amount of media coverage and, and um, uh, an invite to meet with the, uh, the Minister of Finance. Um, I wouldn't say surprise. I knew that there was an issue. Um, I um, asked when I met with the Minister for Finance to be given uh, some time to really acquaint myself with this, uh, with this issue, to understand the background. I was new in role, but also to look at how we could address the regulatory concerns, but also our customers and broader society's concerns around how we had how customers with with trackers had been treated and if we had done something wrong then um, the need to quickly redress and compensate and and you know that um, Mm. a few weeks later um, towards uh, the end of October I made a decision to increase um, the number of customers that we would be looking to compensate and redress and my focus um, is very much on getting that done as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, now the Central Bank made it clear that they kind of forced this on, on the bank. So is this, is this you drawing a line under this issue once and for all on, on the Bank of Ireland
2: front? That, that is our intent. I mean, I'm, I think our customers and those impacted want to see a line drawn. They want to have certainty that they've been treated fairly, they've been given the right compensation and redress um, and that is absolutely my intent. I've made this a personal priority since I started. I give a personal commitment to the minister that I would sort this out Um, and I think that with the team we've made a lot of progress in terms of contacting all the customers that have been impacted those who have got live or open mortgages putting them on the right rate um, and contacting um, the vast majority of our customers and um, when they respond compensating them fully um, for, um, for 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 the overcharge, but also the, the compensation and redress for the distress that's been caused. And I can only repeat the apology that I said on my, my first sort of statement to, to the media about um, the upset, the anxiety, the frustration this has caused. Um, and my focus is really on rebuilding real trust in Bank of Ireland and drawing a line under this issue.
0: OK. Danny McCoy, housing has been a big issue in Ireland now for a couple of years. Do you think it's going to continue to dominate the agenda in 2018?
3: Uh, unfortunately, I think it will, um, but it is a byproduct of how strong the economy is doing. You know? So going back to what Francesca said. You know, mm. What kind you, of growth
0: are you expecting next
3: year? Uh, well, I, th- I, I think the in volume growth, I think we can expect another 5% growth. Um, the, the latest numbers for last year, 17, um, was suggesting that the economy has probably grown about 7% in volume. And a lot of that's driven by the population dynamics, which goes back to that housing issue. The demand is going to way outstrip supply in housing, unfortunately, for the next five years, I would say. So um, how
0: many houses do we need to build per well, year? Without, per any pre-
3: without any precision on it, I think the scale that people were talking about, 25,000 houses, uh, were a steady state when we got there, but we got such deficits. So I, I personally could see us needing 50,000 plus. And just to put it in context back in 2007 we built 93,000 houses so too many at the time yeah, clearly way out of whack. but but the population base now is much bigger than 10 years ago because the population's been increasing over the last decade mm-hmm. even during the financial crisis the population didn't fall at any stage
0: yeah so in terms of new new bills in terms that we don't have figures for 2017 yet but you know all of the commentators seem to suggest that you're probably talking about in terms of real new bills now you're probably talking about maybe 10,000 or something something like that which is way 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 away from the the figure you just mentioned absolutely
3: yeah and it is stunning that we don't know So how it's stunning that we actually don't uh, know how many new houses. You know, if you use um, the electricity connections, you get one number. If you use the energy ratings, you get half that number. So it is pretty stunning. Uh, But if you just think about it, employment, net employment growth is over 50,000. So even if they're a a couple, let's say, getting a job and wanting to start off a new household, that's 25,000 even alone. Um, So, you know, clearly... You know, I'm nearly talking myself into it at this point, but I have no doubt that we're talking about 50,000 plus required for catch up just to even get to the steady state. And that steady state, then, once we get there, I'm sure we'll be in the order of about 35,000 housing units a year on the population size. How long before we get to 50,000 a year? Well, that's, um, well, it won't be next year. Uh, Sorry, it won't be, you know, in 18 um, Mm. and possibly not next year. In a
0: good year, what what might we build in 2018?
3: Oh, I would hope we would get up to 25,000, 30,000, actually, um, would be uh, In 2018? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because there is, there is quite a lot in the pipeline. You know, I do, the government is behind the curve on this, but when they say they're making progress, in fairness, they are. And I think we will see a lot more delivery, but the unfortunate thing is just not enough. And it goes through another problem that I think that the government may have um, this year coming is with the national planning framework. Uh, that's been built for a population increase of only one million people. I think that is uh, ludicrously um, already uh, behind the curve. Mm. The, the, as as likely to reach two million, but definitely one
0: million would be too low. Okay, but that's presuming, of course, there are, there are no shocks in between, and there are a lot of people out there now, Danny, who are they're saying that the Irish economy is starting to feel and look like the Celtic Tiger years. Uh, we're starting to see price growth in very many sectors. The housing market uh, is you know, chaotic. The rental market, rents are going through the roof. I mean, a lot of people in Dublin just can't afford to get by anymore because of the, the size of the rents, and yet they can't, they, they can't buy a home either. Uh, so a lot of similarities, uh, if you like, with the Celtic Tiger years, and we know how that ended.
3: Well, uh, well I'd actually argue it's beyond the Celtic Tiger, uh, except this time, and Francesca's in that space, it's not credit fueled. This is cash fueled, And then you've got to ask where's the cash coming from? And the cash is coming from the economic recovery that's been evident in the economy for the last five years. And I've been one of those people talking about that, is that we've seen this economy recover. We've been in the recovery and now in this kind of boom phase, I would argue, uh, for the last year. And yet the narrative is only starting to change out of austerity as people talk about any crisis they can find, but blithely ignoring what is visible to everybody in the country is that we're in a period now of quite conspicuous consumption. Uh, private uh, income is high. Consumption is high again. Low inflation. Uh, low inflation. Low interest but rates. the tragedy for us is our public infrastructure is not keeping up with this private affluence. And if you just take the corporate sector, right now there's €1 billion Euro of investment every month by Irish corporates in machinery and equipment building and construction mm. and yet stereotypically if you think about Galway in the medtech sector huge things going on in the industrial site but the road to get in there is pretty mm. non-existent or trapped in car yeah, parks but it's
0: difficult for government isn't it i mean we still have a deficit for example no, we don't
3: still, we don't have a we we, ha- we haven't had a debt problem for 3 years like the notion that corporates would look at the expanding market, expanding population, and take an absolute amount of debt, the debt has fallen in front of our eyes, which was 120% of debt to GDP, is now below 70%. Mm. And uh, all of this hand-wringing about our debt, nobody comes out. First thing people are out to say is, oh, the denominator is exaggerated because of leprechaun economics. Again, that's a lie. What this has been driven from is corporate balance sheets that are actually reacting to the OECD work on corporate taxes, Ireland has won the lottery. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing. What I do know is if you don't know the difference between a good and a bad thing, it's
0: a bad thing. We're already beginning to lose competitiveness as a result of the amount of cash that's in the economy. Okay. Uh, Chris Horn, Danny mentioned uh, corporate tax rates, and there's no doubt that corporate tax rates have spiked in Ireland over the past few years, which is great. Uh, we like to see that money coming in. But there is this cloud, isn't there, hanging over foreign direct investment potentially because there's this whole global narrative around how these uh, corporations are taxed. We saw uh, Brussels taking on Apple in Ireland and demanding that Apple repays 13 billion uh, to Ireland. Ireland's appealing that, Apple's appealing that. Uh, We have Facebook taking the decision very recently that they're no longer going to book global revenues uh, through Ireland. Uh, Google is in the crosshairs of Brussels. IKEA uh, is in the crosshair of uh, Brussels, etc. And we have relied on foreign direct investment Uh, over a a large number of years for uh, employment and and growth and so forth. So could this be the beginning of the end of our sort of glorious journey uh, with foreign direct investment, particularly from American multinationals and particularly in the sort of social media Uh, tech Hi, Karen. Well,
1: I think the writing's been on the wall for some time over tax rates in the country. It's not that we should be surprised by the changes in, in the implementation of policies perhaps that we're seeing coming in from the European Union and indeed, with the Trump administration, the United States, the move to repatriate uh, uh, treasury holdings overseas is, is also an influence. But I think uh, for many of the multinationals operating here, the one reason is tax, but another reason is just the the quality of the uh, the people and the educational system, and increasingly the quality of the research and development that's done in the country. In the last uh, 15 years or so, we've been quite substantial public funds, but taxpayers' money put into scientific research here through Science Foundation, Ireland in particular. And in the universities, that's led then to a cohort of post-doctorate students, PhD students have come out of the system and have been readily absorbed by and large into the multinational sector. I think also we're seeing strong growth in the indigenous startups. And some very exciting new companies coming to the the global market. And if you look at dynamics that are happening in other high-tech environments, uh, like uh, Silicon Valley, obviously, but also in Israel and Singapore, one of the reasons the multinationals stay around is precisely this interaction between their own motherships and and parent uh, activity and the the high-growth, exciting indigenous startups and the interaction Mm -hmm. that that brings, the opportunity to work alongside Exciting new innovative companies to potentially acquire them and acquire their teams and their technology. So that's another reason that I think the multinationals will continue to be interested here. So it's no longer a tax story. Mm. It was a tax story. Now,
0: mind you, else. you mentioned the talent pool, but we're, I mean, Danny uh, would know this better than I would, but aren't we reaching near full employment here? So won't that put pressure in terms of uh, recruitment? And aren't a lot of uh, these positions being filled by uh, foreign nationals?
1: Well, absolutely, they're being uh, uh, um, filled by foreign nationals. I mean, Ryanair, frankly, has done more to integrate Europe than the European Union. It's actually very easy for somebody in Estonia or Latvia or in Poland or in Italy to work in Dublin or work in Cork and work in Galway. just fly in for the week, fly home for the week, particularly when they're relatively highly paid and you're essentially in the same time zone. The flights are short. So it's not just about the, in, you know the domestic talent pool. It's about the European talent pool and Ireland has become a real attraction in the tech sector, at least for international workers coming from elsewhere in Europe. It really is uh, one of the uh, hot spots in Europe right now. But we're
0: constantly told that there are huge skills shortages in Ireland for the tech sector in certain uh, disciplines.
1: I think what you're seeing is that for some of the disciplines, some of the very major corporates really take anybody that they can get. They so sort of Mm. take in as many people as they possibly can. Uh, And that does lead to shortages. But at the same time, uh, people don't necessarily stay in their career in one particular large multinational forever. Mm -hmm. So what's an interesting dynamic is people coming out of some of the multinationals with global experience in a high-tech sector in their mid-careers and looking then perhaps, well, mm. I have an interesting idea, I could do a start-up. There is risk capital available in this country, perhaps higher than it's ever been in the history of the country. And so for people with good ideas and good teams and experience, there's a lot of opportunity.
0: Francesca, you've worked abroad, obviously, in a number of locations. What's the view of Ireland from abroad? Are we seeing this a tax haven?
2: I think the uh, the view of Ireland abroad is a positive one in general. You've got, I think, the youngest it's the youngest population in Europe. It's a very open and dynamic economy. Um, It's seen as an attractive place to come and and live and work. Uh, Certainly, certainly for me, Uh, I found it to be incredibly welcoming and the. The issue about the, the supply and demand of talent, there's a lot of talent in Ireland. And I think the, um, the, the onus is on companies like Bank of Ireland to offer an attractive proposition, to offer the right culture and the right sort of reward structure, not just financially, but in terms of career development and progress, training you know, young entrants on the right skills. But also, as the behaviours of our customers evolve, ensuring that some of our employees that have maybe have you know more branch-based or manual-based skills, Reskilling them to adapt mm. to changing situations. And expectations something you guys of something Bank of, a, of Ireland, a, aren't abso- you? Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Um, let's talk about Brexit. Uh, what impact is it going to have on Bank of Ireland, Francesca?
2: Um, I mean, f- the, my, my primary focus is really on the impacts that it has on our customers and the, um, the uncertainty that Brexit is causing is of concern. So whilst we expect both the Irish and the UK economies to grow, uncertainty is expected to really weigh in on um, our customers, whether those are corporates or, or, or personal customers or small business owners really weigh in on their decisions around investing and, and business lending appetite. Um, so we have a significant business, obviously, in Ireland and in the UK, both in Northern Ireland and, and, and in Great Britain. Um, and our big focus is on giving our customers in those markets support, advice, guidance and, and insight. So that's you know, events with our chief economists and global market specialists about the road ahead. Um, what we see, and we do a, a regular pulse, um, an economic pulse of our of, of, of the market, we do see that even though there is some So, for example, 28% of retailers expect Christmas turnover this year to be up um, on last year and about half expected to be the same. So that's a bit of an improvement year on year. And when we look at 2018, um, only two in five businesses expect to spend more on investment next year compared to this year. And that wait and see approach we're seeing being quite prevalent amongst many of our our Mm. customers. I know you've
0: done some research, particularly around the border areas uh, among a lot of your customers.
2: Um, Yes, and and we see that that uncertainty is is relevant at all segments. Um, We are lending more to farmers, for example, than anyone else. And and we know that the question of trade and euro sterling or euro dollar um, exchange rates are really top of their mind. Um,
0: Chris Horn, I wonder if, I mean, we've had a lot of talk about hard border, soft border. And and, um, the British side in the negotiations was suggesting that technology could be used uh, perhaps to avoid a hard border. What's your view?
1: I frankly have my doubts, Kieran. I don't think there's a technical solution for the complexity of some of the processes that are run uh, internationally. Uh, It may be possible in some limited uh, cases, but I don't think it's a general solution. I would be surprised if there is a technical solution that will actually implement successfully and reliably implement a full water control, whether it be soft or hard, frankly.
2: Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to IrishLifeEmpower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015.
0: Danny, in terms of Brexit, we were... Not so much promise, but we were told that there could be a jobs dividend out of Brexit, particularly in financial services with a lot of London-based uh, institutions perhaps moving roles here. But I just wonder, you know, this whole issue around the talent pool, et cetera, and, uh, you know, if a lot of uh, Brexit-related jobs start coming here, that might uh, they will poach staff, presumably, from uh, organisations here. That'll bid up wages. That might bid up rents. It might bid up housing. Sure. It's not necessarily a great thing, is it?
3: No, I well, think well, things are neither good nor bad, but thinking makes them so. Um, I believe that we will get a jobs dividend, actually, from it. And uh, just in the Brexit stop-go aspect, you, 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 even in the last couple of weeks, you would have seen uh, Barnier uh, come out and say there would be no passporting rights, uh, which is a major is driver for mm. the financial uh, relocation. Uh, whether that happens or not, I think the, the seeds of doubt will play on people's minds to say maybe we need to, you know, future-proof ourselves and, and spread some of that risk. So I think we will, we will see some of those jobs come. But just going to go back, and it is Brexit-related, it's around these two islands being attractors for globalisation over the last uh, generation. Both Britain and Ireland have really uh, excelled, um, partly by being open to Eastern European uh, migration. I think we should look, and Chris made this point, I think, a little later earlier on, we should look to the Irish emigration history. Um, our Eastern European, Polish, Lithuanian people who came maybe 12 years ago are at a stage of their life now where they may have to make a decision about whether to stay or to uh, go home. And, and being a child of the 70s, I remember even in Tuam, uh, lots of people returned from England who would have gone in the late 50s because it was an opportunity to do so. Um, They kind of got slammed again in the 1980s and were away again. But, you know, this this will be a phenomenon, I think, in our labor market is that the the quality of the migration as well is that mean by that is people who've given 12 years already embedded in our structures may actually be mobile now in a way that we're just thinking about an attraction. We've got to retain as well. And that goes to the heart of the public infrastructure and the housing. It is mission critical. That we get our public infrastructure up and be ambitious, and that's why I think this national planning framework I mentioned about
0: earlier on well, if has to be over ambitious. Okay, and if there were three pieces of infrastructure that you think should be prioritised by the government, what would they be?
3: Well, the first one's a 20th century one: is we need to finish the motorway system. I mean, you know, you might say it's not uh, 21st, you know, broadband or whatever technology. The sheer act of being able to connect up our cities. Uh, is not just a commercial, it's a social issue. So you're talking
0: limited cork, that type of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely.
3: Um, and very affordable. I mean, it would take about 15 billion euros to finish that off and people are blanching saying that's a lot of money we're well, it debt. is a lot of money, come on.
0: Well, it isn't actually.
3: Well, it, it is. It, it, it
0: isn't. <laughs> it, it, it genuinely isn't. People like weep here. at the thought of 20.8 billion going into you the t- AIB. You want to spend 15 billion no, on the road. If you, but if you think
3: about it, it's a piece of infrastructure, right? So you're talking about servicing... Each of us about seven thousand uh, a year. is going to do the maths much easier than I. And you're only doing the interest costs. This is against Irish households who've self-reported that their average income is €1,100 Euros Yeah, a that's
0: year. before tax, I presume.
3: Before tax, is, um, it's 1005 when the tax comes in because our income tax system is, we know, yeah. only on the shoulders of a few. So, I mean, but seriously, oh, sorry, uh, but seriously sorry, the, the knee-jerk reaction... But rea- Danny, in well, fairness, but the there's knee-jerk a lot reaction of homelessness now. in this country and, uh, and uh, a lot of Kieran, politicians the would the say, knee-jerk
0: reaction, wouldn't we be better off prioritising some of that money to repair the homelessness crisis rather than building can, some Well, you
3: roads. see, here's the point. You can do both right because this narrative that somehow we're actually cash constrained is feeding into the problems that people are hand wringing about okay. the solution is actually in front of our eyes but we've we've you know basically said we will keep ourselves in this austerity narrative yet out there in the streets you can see the consumption private consumption is high and anybody who wants to walk around the cities of Ireland not just Dublin because there is a bit of Dublin Guilt going on as well. You go around the country, and if you look at the schoolyards, you will see the quality of the cars, which would be better than Dublin because people have less cost for their housing. Sure. But lots of the salaries and all the yeah. social welfare okay. payments are the right, same regardless. One. Where go you go
0: on, give us two and three.
3: So the other ones are our education system. Uh, it is actually unconscionable being now one of the richest nations on earth, and that is a fact. And inconvenient as it is, it is a fact that we're. I'm not in sure
0: Richard Bybar would agree. But well,
3: they in, you know, financial literacy comes to be part of the issue as well. You can, you know, you can have your own interpretation of data, okay. but you education, can't be on data. What, what, uh, third so, level, so, second level? Well, actually, third level is probably the most important one right now because our, our education system is very strong coming true and we're not ranked in that regard. Our PISA scores are good for the educational system as well. It could be better, but what we're really losing is our ranking has gone down. And Chris was right earlier on. Our research is actually right up there now, but that's from investments were made 15 years ago. We've actually paused in the last six, seven years. Okay. That's number two, two, three. And the last one is actually goes out to technology. We really should be able to deliver broadband in a very small nation, and that will, you know, that may need to be subsidised. Imagine that that we'd actually go ahead, and you know, a rich country would actually deliver a premium to its citizens that are actually
0: away from some yeah, of the bigger. Okay, urban. are yeah, up quite a bill there for Pascal Dunhu. anyway, we'll come back to that in a moment. Chris, just in terms of technology innovations um, that we might witness in 2018, you know, a lot of commentary around, uh, for example, driverless cars. Uh, do you see progress on that front uh,
1: next year, or are we going to see more of AI and robots? And- yes, I do indeed. I, I think with driverless vehicles, probably the the first, you know, the, the, the higher priority at the moment is, is uh, uh, the technology applying to uh, goods vehicles and heavy, you know, articulated lorries as opposed to consumer passenger cars, uh, because there's the movement of freight, particularly around Europe and indeed in this country, is, is intensive. And there are already convoy systems where a driver in the lead truck is human, but the, in the trucks behind and the rest of the convoy are actually following the guy in front. And that technology has been attested successfully across mm. European motorways. So it would be like
0: the, the train networks in America. You see these very, very long yeah. trains <coughs> sort of snaking their way through the countryside almost. Uh, and it could be a mile or so long.
1: Uh, uh well I don't think I think we'll see mile long lorry convoys but you could see two or three trucks in, mm-hmm. in a convoy being led by human and the rest of it being technology. I think also in uh, the drive to improve emission standards electrical vehicles too you mentioned artificial intelligence that's a major area globally at the moment and machine learning uh, also what's called augmented reality. Um, some of you may remember the hit of whatever it was, 2015-16, was this Pokemon Go game on your mobile phone. Nonsense. That, that overlaid onto your, what you were seeing with your camera some graphic uh, uh, cartoon it? characters. I tried it just to have the experience... But I think where that's going now is rather than just a graphic characters, if you can overlay other photographs and even images and even images of you, here in three dimensions. Okay. Where, uh, I'm not sure se- anybody wants an image of me in three dimensions. What you're seeing essentially is a hologram being overlaid on your, on your field sure. of view. And where that then leads you is not only into uh, technology used for say, training uh, technicians, for education, also for being able to, I don't know, do home movies of your kids that you can send off to your uncle and aunt in, in New Zealand where you can actually rotate okay. the view and see it. But more interestingly and, and concernedly, it, it's into the whole area of fake news. We already have fake fake text being used for fake news. But what happens when we have fake photographs and fake videos showing events, apparently entirely real, but mm. actually completely Donald Trump fake. would love this. Well, absolutely. So it's, not, it's no longer about text anymore. It's also visual. It's f- fake video, okay. fake and photographs could be a real threat, frankly, to our democracy. Okay, and just
0: in terms of these innovations, I mean, is Ireland up to speed? Or are we in the vanguard?
1: We're well, absolutely... Playing heavily in that space, and it's one of the areas that Science Foundation Ireland has invested in. There are a number of researchers that are well known in this country, and a number of. So you have researchers to up to trying, speed, and we are, and there's some interesting technology okay. coming to play. Yeah, Absolutely.
2: Add well, the sort of the up to speed in, in banking. So Bank of Ireland, um, we've I've, I've been the framed, end of the branch,
0: I, I presume, uh, Francesca. No,
2: not at all. Uh, your words, not mine. um I've been very impressed by the use of robotics. So when we talk about robotics. It's obviously software, not hardware. Um, so it is kind of like a really mega smart macro. Um, and we've seen robotics apply to the work that it would have taken 550 of our people to do. And this is work the incremental work that we're doing to um, increase the speed of how we service our customers yeah. and reduce error rates. Okay. And actually, that that, is, you know, that that for me is going to be a big growth area for, sure. for banking. That it's sounds not, interesting. not the end of branches, may I, may I hasten to add. All right. How
0: many staff uh, does Bank of Ireland employ currently, roughly speaking? Around 11,000. 11,000. Okay. So let's look out five. 10 years, let's say in 10 years' time, with uh, all of this technology at play within the bank, how many staff do you think you'll have?
2: I, I haven't got a number. Um, I think it's fair to say that we have fewer staff today than we had previously. And over time, as we um, as we make some of our systems um, more automated, we may have fewer people. Um, but the role of branches and the personal impacts of service in the front line will not change. It doesn't matter how much technology... Mm. But a lot we of your branches... It, it doesn't matter how much technology you put in the back, the back end, what our customers value is that personal face-to-face relationship that they have with our people in the front line. Sure.
0: A lot of your branches are sort of self-service. They don't have any over-the-counter uh, transactions. There isn't any human interaction, uh, as it were. And that seems to be irritating a lot of people.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't agree there's, there's no human interaction. So we, uh, Bank of Ireland has the largest um, branch network in Ireland. We have over 250 branches um, but we, the branch is configured and reflects the behaviour and preferences of our customers. So only 3% of, of customers' transactions are conducted over, over the counter and many customers prefer just to do things through other direct channels. Now yeah, that's, that's, not for, that's not for everyone but uh, just sure. talking about the Christmas period that we're in uh, Black Friday we had 12.5 million transactions in a single day being done through point of sale, using cards, ATMs and, and internet banking and, and that's just in, in one single day. So that is, that's not because of branch closures, that's because how customers are choosing to consume.
0: Well, how much of it is customers actually choosing it to consume it that way and how much of it has been forced on them by the banks reconfiguring the no, way you're operating. And, and, your and, I, and
2: I do know that um, the branch network is very important for many of our customers. On my first day as the CEO of Bank of Ireland, one of the first things I did on day one was go to visit our oldest branch, College Green, um, one of the oldest banking halls in Europe. But I also went to Grand Canal branch, which is um, doesn't have counters and is very much focused on our supporting SMEs and, and, and fintechs. Um, f- for me, the role of the branch is incredibly important in the future. and I know there are changes, but they do reflect customer behaviour. Yeah,
3: I think that's just good picking up on that team uh, The transformation in the Irish economy, going back to the County Tiger we talked about earlier on, is that the capital-labour ratio is changed remarkably. So you, even oh, what's if, the capital-labour ratio? So we're, we're ratio. back at two million. Let's
0: explain that. So we're week.
3: back at two million people working again, but the actual capital stock and what they're using and the productivity that comes from that is actually immeasurable we are, in my view, about three times ahead in terms of output for mm. the same amount of people, yeah. which is this capital deepening. And as Francesca said, it's, it's actually following where the trend is in society. You know, the stereotypical um, movement of, of people is that they're on the go, required things mobile, and that's really a feature of, mm. of society. In Ireland, it's lucky, is that it's now absolutely a
0: frontier economy in Dan, any description. Danny, is this creep of the gig economy, uh, is this a good thing?
3: Well, again, in the vast majority of cases, it is, but it's certainly bringing insecurity. And I think that insecurity has consequence for corporations as well, because the more insecurity a society has, it's very difficult for stakeholders to actually have a common agenda. And this is actually the theme I was talking about as well. Some of the gig economy is a function of the workplace changes, but it's also a function of the wealth that people have. And so that people want to be on the move. They don't want to be locked in at this stage in their career. However, as they get older and need the security of a home story, and a pension. And so I think one of the features that we're grappling with is as a young dynamic economy, being a frontier economy, we, we actually will probably have to grapple with these issues in the next decade. I think the gig economy has many features going to it, but I think there is an element of more security so we can get the social infrastructure that we require. At the moment, we have no mechanisms to do that. I think Chris? There's an
1: interesting opportunity for, I don't know whether Bank of Ireland is considering this or Francesca, but, but at least for the, for the traditional banking industries. How do you address the gig economy from the point of view of uh, uh, individuals who are operating it? how do you raise a mortgage, how do I get a house, how do I take on a long-term loan, given that I'm a gig economy worker, and how can the banking sector address that? There are opportunities, I think, for some creative thought there as to how these issues can be addressed so that, in fact, Danny, the risk... Can be reduced for the gig economy and for people who choose yeah. to work in that
0: way. Francesca, just going back to the housing crisis, I mean, what's your view on how we might be able to solve the uh, housing situation in Ireland at the minute?
2: Okay, so Bank of Ireland is one of the largest lenders to the Irish economy, and, and for us, Taking a step back from the big numbers, property in your house is a really important part of people's psyche and, and livelihoods, and it's the big, mortgage is typically the biggest part of your disposable income that you spend. It's where it's often your largest financial asset, and it's where you know, it's the roof over your family's head. So. Um, we can talk big numbers, but we don't underestimate the importance of people's personal homes when we talk about the sort of the property market. We um, are the largest lender with a fund of €1 billion Euros for property investment, and that figure has grown uh, since, since t- 2014. So it was about €250 million what, what do you Euros mean by then. property investment? So that is making funds available for lending to property developers. So for example, this year we have financed 3,500 housing units and mm. over one and a half thousand student beds and, and we're very well positioned to grow that quite significantly in, in, in the year ahead. And our strategy around house building is to enable the acquisition of land that is shovel ready um, mm. to encourage you know proper house building and homes for people as and opposed are you to favoring,
0: land are you favoring housing estates over apartment blocks? I mean that's that's part of what we hear from the construction sector is that lenders really they see apartment blocks as being risky. Uh, with housing estates, obviously, you can build a few houses, you can sell them. That gives you releases some cash then to build the next few and so forth. With an apartment block, you really have to go for the whole lot in one go.
2: Yeah, we don't have a, a strong bias or, or preference. We'll look at, you know, case by case in terms of property developments. Um, and our, our focus really is in supporting um, sustainable property growth in Ireland.
0: And are you? do you think we should go high-rise? Dublin's a, a relatively low-rise uh, city. It's OK, you can say this. You're an outsider. <laughs> do, you, do you think we should go high-rise? <laughs>
2: I've lived in high-rise cities. I've lived in low-rise cities. Um, I, you know, it depends on what the people want to build and what they want to buy. Right, OK. A very safe <laughs> answer.
0: Um, Danny McCoy, one spanner in the works in 2018 might be a general election. We almost had one uh, in 2017, but uh, everybody uh, stepped back from the cliff, as, as it were. Do you think we'll have a general election? And if we do, could that queer the pitch for the economy?
3: Um, I actually think we probably will have a general election in 2018, but that's only a personal hunch as Spring, much as Spring or ask. autumn? I, I think uh, possibly uh, in the autumn. Uh, and the reason I say this is that we're beyond the austerity, as I said earlier, but the budget is actually going to show this. The fiscal space that Pascal Dunne, who had... On this occasion, when you stripped out everything, it was about 300 million. That goes to 3 billion next year. or Sorry, this year, rather, uh, 18's budget. Um, and I think uh, the opposition will want to get their hands on some of that money as well. So the, the fight will be around budget time. I don't think it'll be around mm. the referendum. And is that somewhere. a good
0: or a bad thing? For, will it make any difference to the economy? Will it make any difference to foreign direct investors?
3: Well, what I would hope is that the outcome... Uh, we'll have a more stable government and we're not in the hands of uh, propped up by independence in this new politics. Which frank, Sinn Féin government? Which, frankly, that concerns you? Um, well, Sinn Féin um, have uh, a record in Northern Ireland where we've seen them in government which hasn't been business unfriendly. So what they campaign um, Andrew, the and, what, the uh, the and what they govern at is, is quite different. But at this stage, they don't look as if they're going to be any majority. So I don't think that's a fear factor. But... You know, who knows? I mean, but what we'd like to see is um, is a strong government not in the hands of independents who, frankly, one never knows from day to day what new ideas they will come up with. So, for instance, yeah. there is a bill before Parliament at the moment that your socioeconomic address should be used when it comes to compensation for losing your job. So depending on your home address, the scale of your redundancy payments as a as an example of of wackiness.
0: Yeah, um, Chris Horne, We've seen some political uncertainty in other parts of the world. We have Donald Trump wreaking all sorts of havoc uh, from America. We had the Brexit decision in Britain. We, you know, various uh, election results in continental Europe, etc. How might a general election, in your opinion, change things in Ireland next year?
1: Well, I'm kind of, I think, implicitly where. Danny is, I hope, not very much other than to, uh, you know, steady as she goes, but increasing the stability of the government is, is, is the key thing.
0: Would you have any concerns about Sinn Féin and government? Um,
1: if they were in a majority position, I think I would. In a minority, I think um, there's probably a workable solution with, with the, the the senior partner. Um, but coming back more to the global perspective, I think what we should be careful about as an economy in a country is not to take our eyes off what's happening in the east and in China, and the rise of China as a global world power, and economic power, already they're leading the world on a number of technologies like drones and three um, D printing and supercomputers. You watch China, and with the infrastructure build from China from China to Eastern Europe uh, with railway systems, that's going to open up direct connections for freight from all over continental Europe to China. So don't forget about China. We should be looking east as much as we're looking west. Yeah,
0: and uh, it'd be helpful, I, I guess, if
1: we had a direct air link with China as well, wouldn't it? Well, that, that's announced. Uh, Cathay Pacific are opening Dublin to sure. Hong Kong. But Canada that's Hong State. Kong. But if we... Hong Kong. Uh, I think the mainland will If will we had the
0: mainland, one. that I would, think, be, that would be helpful as well. Yeah, I know there's really a lot of discussions going on in the background and, that, and they hope to progress that. Francesca, you should have some good news to announce in 2018. Uh, the, the bank has... Uh, it's well flagged now that you're going to uh, resume your dividend payment uh, in 2018 which would be the, the first time in a decade um, that the bank has paid out to shareholders AIB has already gone down this uh, path so you should be a popular person uh, in 2018
2: um, I don't know about being popular but I um, I'm doing everything I can to serve the interests of our, our customers uh, colleagues and in, in our, on our sh- stakeholders including shareholders um, any announcement we make around dividends will be part of our normal um, results um, uh, announcements in February
0: yeah sure and the government the state owns 14% of yep. bank of ireland um,
2: would it change of government would that would that upset you at all um i will work with whichever government the 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 people of ireland um elect and and i wouldn't presume to tell a government um how to handle their shareholding in in bank of ireland
0: right okay so you've no opinion on whether they should maybe 2018 should be the year that they finally sell down their Bank of Ireland
2: stake? We're, we're very supportive of a, of a return to a normalised banking sector in Ireland, but it is a matter for the government on yeah. what they, how and when they would want to sell shares, yeah. and, and that's, not, that's not my position to, to tell them how to do that.
0: Danny, what do you think? Should uh, the state sell its uh, shareholdings in, in the banks, Bank of Ireland, AIB, Permanent TSB? Well,
3: I think it's good for society to have the banks back in private ownership. And I think it's not the state's role. We know why they ended in that, so... I think it's a resumption of normality when we have our banks in the international capital markets, and so I think that'll be a good thing—a sign of recovery. Mm. Do you think they will? Um,
0: have you been more in
3: AAB? I, I, I would hope they do. So actually, that would be my personal view, and I think that would would be a, a real sign of of things are over. The the government frankly, has better things to be doing with its capital in terms of social
0: infrastructure. Roads, exactly. Universities and uh, so forth. Okay. All right. I'm just going to conclude by just going around the table and just, I suppose, just ask ask you all, you know, are you positive or negative about uh, 2018? And maybe just just give one prediction um, uh, for, for the year, if you like. We might start with you, Chris.
1: I'm generally positive on 2018. I think it's steady as she goes. Let's not overheat things but, but keep the, the buoyancy. I think the the indigenous technology sector is going extremely well. Uh, One prediction I'd be concerned about continuing global instability at the macroeconomic macro political thing uh, between the tr- the Trump administration and others. The threat uh, frankly of war breaking out is very real at this point in a number of places around the planet. So I think the, the global macroeconomic picture looks Does uh, North Korea yes. concern you? Yes it does absolutely and, he, and the statement uh, recently by the Trump administration about their potential use of their nuclear weapons for non-nuclear tactical use also is is a threat. Uh, The first time that the US administration for some years has suggested they might use nuclear weapons in a uh, uh, non-nuclear capacity is also uh, (laughs) a big warning, I think, to a number of the states, which may cause a reaction.
3: Danny. It's getting better and better. I'm really optimistic for 18 because all the choices that will make it good, I think, are in our control. Things like Brexit and, as as Chris said, the international, they're uncontrollables, but we have no knowns in this economy. And what we know is we've got the resources now that we have the wisdom to actually use them well. I, I think we do.
0: What do you think the ultimate outcome of the Brexit talks will be?
3: I don't think that Britain will leave the single market and customs union, ultimately. I think they will be aligned and fully aligned. And I believe that it's inconsistent then that they would have their own trade agreements. And in fact, the world is very cold to Britain when it comes to trade anyhow. So I think it's a matter of time. Uh, They will not reverse the decision. Uh, So the question is, how long is the transition? And I think that could be substantially longer than people are talking about. And hard border or soft border? Uh,
0: Soft Okay. Francesca, uh, you kicked us off. I'll give you the final word.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I feel very positive about 2018. Uh, My one single prediction is that Bank of Ireland will better serve uh, the needs and interests of our customers, colleagues and the communities that we serve, including our shareholders. Okay,
0: uh, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Francesca McDonough, Danny McCoy and Chris Horn. Declan Conlon produced the show, Rob Sullivan as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. All that's left is for me to wish you all a very happy new year and we'll talk to you in 2018. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.